to look at five different stories from the book of Daniel, um, and we're looking to see what it teaches us about standing strong in a difficult culture. See, that's why I felt compelled to spend some time in this book, because it gives great examples to us of how people stood strong for God in a culture that I think was even worse than the culture that we find ourselves in today. You know, if you think things around you today are bad, um, and I think they are, imagine what Daniel experienced in his life. And, you know, these aren't just fictitious stories. This is, see, one thing we believe around here is this word is actually God's word. So we stand on that belief that this is God's word. It doesn't, doesn't contain God's word. It is God's word. And so when it says there was a real boy named Daniel, and, and it talks about his life, we really believe that happened because, and we have all kinds of evidence to prove it, but we really believe it. But think of this boy Daniel, in that day and age, what he experienced. That he was a young boy, he was maybe 12, 13, or 14 years old, a young Jewish boy in Jerusalem, and he was kidnapped. Their, their city was completely destroyed and overthrown by the Babylonians. He was kidnapped um, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was deported to Babylon, which to them was the worst place you could be. Uh, he was forced to take on a new name. We looked at that last week. A name that identified him with a pagan god from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Um, he was pressured to become like the society. We saw last week how he stood against some of that pressure, how he was able to stand out in that. Um, and, and he was taught their teachings and raised their ways and made to serve their culture. And so an unbelievable world where that could happen to a, to a young man. And think of all the things that happened to other people in that day and age. Um, that sounds to me a bit more challenging than being laughed at at work because I pray before I eat my lunch. Right? I'm not saying we don't deal with stuff, but that seems a little more drastic than um, somebody ridiculing me because I'm because I read my Bible. And I'm not saying those things aren't real, but I'm saying um, it was bad then. So I think this, I think we can learn some really valuable lessons from Daniel and the people surrounding Daniel on what is it like to live in a difficult culture and still stand up, stand strong for Jesus. So last week, as I mentioned, we learned how to stand out and how we can stand out is different in the culture that is trying to get us to conform. And if you weren't here, I would suggest you go and you listen to that podcast because I think it's really important that we know how to do that. Now today we're going to talk about how we can stand up. How we can stand up in our culture. And I mean something specific by this. And i got to tell you, this is a sermon I'm the most concerned about preaching because it's most possible that we could misunderstand it. And I'll explain that in a minute. So, But what I mean by this is that how you and me, as followers of Jesus, will probably be called on by God to stand up for what is right when we see someone we love choosing to go on a path that is wrong. That we need to stand up some, to stand out sometimes, or stand up sometimes, in the life of a person, and we're going to explain, understand in a little while that it should be a person who's close to you, and, 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 and confront the, something in their life. And I'm, tend, I'm hesitant to use that word, but to confront something in their life because you see them going down a path or living in a way 
that is destructive to them or to other people. So I want to talk about how and if, if we should stand up for what's right and help guide someone back onto a right path in their life. i got to be honest. I really don't want to preach this message because I know what might happen. There's different personality types in every congregation. Some of us in this room um, would, be defi- would be aggressive type of personalities, and you tend to be more confrontational, and you have the possibility of hearing me say something different than I'm actually saying in this message, and you could hear that I'm saying that you are to go out and look for people who are in error and confront them. And that's not what I'm saying. Um, this message could be like putting a loaded gun in somebody's hand. Okay? And saying, I got permission from pastor to go look for error and confront them. Please hear me today. I want to talk about how we should and should not confront today. In fact, I'd say that many times the best thing is to not point out something going on in somebody's life because it's maybe not your place to do it. Now, interestingly, in the same way I say there's aggressive people, there are also other people in the congregation that, um, that are passive, much more passive, and you never want to engage somebody when they're doing the wrong thing. You never, you're very passive, and you think um, that the best thing is just to let you off the hook, and you shouldn't get engaged. I'm going to say no. Never you're passive or aggressive. Don't put those together. Passive, aggressive, bad thing. Um, all of us, um, if we are living in Christian community, will probably have a time when God will want us to use us to help bring somebody back onto the right path in their life. So we will really need to seek God for wisdom as to how we would do that and if we should do it and the right way to do it, and the right time to do it, and the right reasons to do it. So let's see what we can learn from Daniel about this. And we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4, so you can turn there, as I'm kind of setting the the stage for us for what's going on in Daniel chapter 4. That's going to give us some insight into this topic today. So in this chapter, we're going to find again, evil King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, We talked about him last week at length. He was an evil guy. And I read something that can help us kind of understand what kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar really was. So who remembers, not not that distant past, who Saddam Hussein was? Okay, Saddam Hussein. Would you say Saddam Hussein's a nice guy? No, not a nice guy. Do you know that Saddam Hussein's ultimate hero was King Nebuchadnezzar? In fact... Saddam Hussein believed that he was the reincarnation of King Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he actually, I read that, that he believes he's actually the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. So if you want to understand the kind of guy, because he's emulating, he's trying to emulate what he knew about King Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to understand the kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was, think of Saddam Hussein. That kind of a dictator, ruthless kind of person. Now, what I find really interesting about this story, matter of fact, I think it's the most baffling thing to me of the entire book of Daniel, is that 
although King Nebuchadnezzar was like Saddam Hussein, still God used him. I mean, overtly used him, and God blessed his leadership. And that's really hard for me to figure out, and we're not going to figure out, um, but God used him. And so what we find in chapter 4 is King Nebuchadnezzar's leading, and God gives him a dream. And the dream scared him, so he called for all his magicians and interpreters to tell him what the dream meant. Um, and it's really interesting here how it's, it's translated in different ver- versions of the Bible in different ways when, about how the interpreters responded. Um, see, some of the interpretations say that this, that the, when he came to them, to the magicians and the interpreters to interpret the dream, it says that they could not interpret the dream. And some of them said they would not interpret the dream. So, so, um, later, if you've looked at a parallel Bible or a bunch of different Bibles, look at, take, take a look at this and look at chapter four and look at that they translate it different. Some of the translations say, and the magicians could not translate the dream. And other ones say, and the magicians would not translate your dream, because you can't figure out, but I think, my feeling is, I might be wrong, is that the right interpretation is that they would not interpret the dream, because as we're going to see in a few minutes, the dream doesn't seem to be that complicated. I think that they were afraid to interpret it, because they were afraid of Nebuchadnezzar's response, and, and this speaks to what we're going to go to today, they were afraid of getting involved in trying to correct somebody. They were afraid of it. Now, they had a good reason to be afraid because it was common back then to kill the messenger. You ever hear that saying, you know, hey, don't shoot the messenger? Back then, they didn't shoot you. They chopped your head off. Matter of fact, he says um, earlier last week when we read about Daniel and he wanted to change his food, remember what the man said to Daniel, why he was afraid to let him eat what he wanted? He literally said this, I'm afraid it will cost me my head. He's like, if the king gets mad, he's going to chop my head off. And so there was a custom back there. You kill the messenger. Somebody brings bad news, you kill him. And I think they were afraid of being killed for telling the truth. So I think these guys are like, well, you know, King Neb, but we just don't understand that dream. Now, that's a complicated one, King uh, Nebby. And so I, I don't know what that's talking about. So, you know, beyond me, good luck. Hope you figure out what that dream means. But I think the deal is, I think they knew what it was, but they just didn't want to tell him. So what's Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes and he searches for Daniel. And now, when we found Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar interacting last time, Daniel was like 12, 13, 14 years old, and Nebuchadnezzar king. But now, Daniel's probably 40 or 50 years old when they're kind of in this chapter 4, what's happening here. And Daniel had interpreted dreams for the king before, and they had a multi-decade relationship going on here, maybe three decades at this point, that, that Daniel is serving under King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel, so King Nebuchadnezzar goes looks for Daniel. So the king explains his dream to Daniel, and he basically says this, he said, I dreamt about this giant tree that had reached up towards the heavens, and the branches and the leaves gave so much shade that it was a blessing to all the people, and all the animals lived under it, and the birds lived in it, and the fruit produced for many, many people on the earth. The tree was a blessing. But then he said, and suddenly this holy one from heaven shouts, cut down the tree and only leave a stump, so that everyone would know that God is the most high God 
and is ruler over all the nations. And, and it talks about this dream he has. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream to Daniel, I think Daniel gets real quiet. Because he also says, well, that's not a tough one. I know what this dream's about. But he doesn't want to interpret the dream. But then Daniel does something incredibly brave and bold and, listen, and loving. Sometimes, because you love someone, you will risk your relationship to say something hard. That's what we have going on here. Sometimes the passive person says, I don't want to get involved. The aggressive person says, I always want to get involved. But here's the deal. Love says sometimes I, I need to get involved. So he does a brave thing because it might cost him his head. And he does a loving thing and he interprets the dream. Which we'll see really becomes a confrontation to King Nebuchadnezzar. So let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 19. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 27. So Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 19. It says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt in those in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached out to the sky and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of bronze, of iron and bronze around it, in the new, in the new, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, And let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. That you would be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is the, it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now from this story, what I see is some guidelines for the time that we feel led to confront, and I'm going to say this, a, a friend, I'm going to say in particular a Christian friend, about something that is out of line in their life. Something that is hurting them, 
or something that is hurting others, something may damage their walk with God. I'm going to point out a few things that I think are really key in here. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, this is the first one. That confronting must be about caring. That confronting must be about caring. Notice how Daniel began his explanation of the dream. So he tells the dream, Daniel immediately knows what the interpretation is. In verse 19 he says, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you. In other words, he could have just he didn't have to say that. He could just say, well, de- well, Nebi, here's the deal. You're in a lot of trouble. God's going to finally get you. You've been nasty, and God's going to finally get you. Which is the way sometimes we would approach a situation. But Daniel doesn't do that. Kind of like, you know, we would at times say, you know, you finally got what you deserved. But Daniel, does, before he says anything corrective, he lets the king know that he cares for him. He said, he's basically saying this, I really care about you, and I wish this weren't true. I wish what I'm going to tell you isn't the case. You see, Daniel reinforces that he is for the king. He's on the king's side. In dealing with this idea of confronting, James Bryant Smith says that the difference between judging someone, which he says never works, and I think he's right, and helping someone get better, by getting engaged in the situation, stems from the heart of the person who's doing the the confrontation. That judging someone comes from a self-centered heart. He says, judging is this, is making a negative evaluation of others without standing in solidarity with them. What What David's or Daniel's doing here, he's standing in solidarity with the king. He's saying, I'm for you, I'm with you. And James Bryan Smith's point, he says, judging is making a negative evaluation, saying, hey, this is going bad in your life or going wrong in your life, or you're doing this out of line. You're making a judgment about someone else, an evaluation of someone else, without standing in loving solidarity with them. Before anything that you say will be received, the person receiving it must believe that you love them. They must believe that you care for them. They must believe that you're standing in solidarity with them. And this is what Daniel did. Before he said anything, he reminds the king, King, I'm on your side. And and friends, if you don't hear anything else today, hear what I want to say right now. This establishes such a helpful precedent for all of us. It's almost never appropriate or beneficial to confront someone that you do not have a good and a loving relationship with. Let me say that again. It is almost never appropriate or beneficial to confront someone that you don't have a good and a loving relationship with. See, this removes all the situations where we are tempted to get involved with or speak our minds about or respond to that we don't have a relationship. Think how that applies to social media. How many times would you respond or repost something if the only time you responded to something that was going wrong is because you had a loving relationship with the person that is being engaged or confronted or corrected. Where there's not a loving relationship, the confrontation almost never does any good. You think, what percentage of social media bashing and social media fighting 
would be eliminated if only those with good established relationships were allowed to offer correction or disagreement. I'd say almost all of it. And I would say this, when you're engaged in that, it affects you. When you're liking something or reposting something or making those little comments about someone that's going on or something that's going on or political candidate that's happening, what's happening is you are oftentimes, we are oftentimes engaging in something corrective or, or, or reproving in a way that will never do any good. It only incites further d- division because there's no loving relationship between you and the other person. I would say almost all of the stuff that goes on Facebook, that's negative. So number one thing on Facebook is people posting pictures of food. Did you know that? I don't get that. I don't understand. Although Suzanne and I went out for sushi on Friday night, and she did take a picture of the sushi with me going like this with chopsticks. Um, And we sent it to our kids on their phones because we knew they would like sushi. Um... But how much of social media, but she, what she didn't do is post it on Facebook. I'm not bashing if you post it on Facebook. But it's food. And number, like number two is bashing things. How much of that would go away if we just had this one precedent that um, unless you're in relationship with the person, a loving relationship, you don't get engaged? Most of it would. Matter of fact, kind of because of this, this reason and some other reasons all tied to it, Suzanne and I have both removed Facebook from our phones. It's gone. You say, oh, you're not liking my stuff anymore. Nope. Maybe I will in the future. I don't know. But at least till Easter, and maybe beyond, Suzanne said to me the other day, she said, oh, my goodness, this is the best thing I ever did. She said, this is wonderful. Not seeing all the junk. Not seeing all the bickering. Not seeing all the, the fighting. Not seeing all the garbage. She says, this is wonderful. Friends, you know how we talk about diets? When I talk about a diet, you know, it's the keto diet or the, what one are we trying to do now? I hate it. Paleo diet. Paleo diet. Should be spelled devil diet. But, um, but anyways, we understand that diet is limiting what we take into our body, taking in only certain things because it's good for you or bad for you. Do you know that the diet applies to what you take into your brain? Do you know the more important diet is what you feed your mind on? I'm getting this way, way more the older I get. That what you feed your brain matters. And so, tying to this, how much would we be better off if we're not engaging with people negatively or correctively that we don't have a relationship with? So, I did say this in the beginning, that if you, you'd almost never be in in a confrontation with someone um, without having a relationship with them. And I said almost never because... I could say there could be a possibility that God could lead someone to confront a stranger or an acquaintance, but I'd say this, that'd be really, really rare. I would say it should be, almost, it should be rare or almost never. But let me add something else about this. Since you will only confront, based on this, these guidelines, if you choose to leave, live them by them, you only confront someone close to you, then because the risk of hurting someone you love because they're close to you is great, I would say this, you're going to be much more likely to be cautious and to pray before you do it. In fact, I would suggest, as you're thinking about confronting a situation in someone's life, that you now, it's only somebody that I'm engaged with, that I have a good relationship with, that you never confront someone without praying for at least a week first. And I mean, on purpose, I'm saying a week. Um, 
that you take a great deal of time to pray about if you're supposed to first. Um, because the damage that can be done by the confrontation may never be repaired. Um, one, of, one of the, you know, I always tell you about the things that are stuck on my walls around my desk, in my office, all over the place. One of them is from Proverbs 15. It says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. It takes time to ponder how you should answer or how you should get involved. So I say take at least a week to pray. See, a few things happen when you pray. First thing is when you pray about a situation, you're inviting God into it. You're inviting God into the situation. You're saying, God, this isn't just about me and this person or me and this person and what I've seen going on in their life, that I'm inviting you into the situation. I'm saying, God, what do you say about the matter? What's your perspective on it? Um, also, as we begin to pray about the, for the person in the situation before we're going to ever confront, what happens is we become more compassionate and less uh, critical because God doesn't look critically on anybody. And so when I pray for someone, I start getting the heart of God for that person. And I'm less, I'm less um, ready to go in there and tear someone's head out and more willing to go in and say, how can I help? And the third thing is, is when we pray, we're, we're, we're asking for wisdom from above. So Suzanne's got a, a um, thing she says all the time, and, and it's, been, it's great wisdom, and, and it's helped me. She always says, Mark, the situation, the issue's not the issue. And whatever's going on, she always goes, you know, Mark, probably the issue's not the issue. We're dealing with interpersonal stuff. You know, the issue's not the issue. It's about people, these people got mad about this. That's really not the issue. There's probably an underlying issue beneath it that's really going on. And when you pray, what's it tell us in, in the book of James? If you ask for wisdom and you're no, not double-minded, he'll give it. What's double-minded mean? As we, looked through, when we went through the book of James together, if you remember, double-minded means you're all in with Jesus. You don't have one foot in the world and one foot with God. You're all in with Jesus. If you're all in with Jesus and you're facing a situation and you ask for wisdom, God will give you wisdom. And so when you pray, you're looking for the wisdom of God. So always pray for an extended period of time before you confront. So that's my first bit of advice um, from Daniel. But what else do we see in Daniel? Number two, it's this. Confront with the goal of restoration. Confront with the goal of restoration. Too often, let me say this first, let me explain Daniel. Daniel interpreted the dream, and then he challenged the king to make the right choice. He says, stop sinning and be restored to God. Look at verse 27. It says, therefore, O king, my, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins and do righteousness. Daniel's goal was to seek, to see the king stop sinning and to see him in a righteous or a right relationship with God. And I'd say this when it comes to this idea of confronting. Too often we confront for the wrong reasons. One of those wrong reasons, and I'm going to tell you something, if you've been raised like me, as I was raised, this is what I was taught by our culture, and particularly by my family culture, is why you confront, and why you're always confronting. And it's this, because you're right. Just taught, because you're right. Why do you confront? Because you're right and somebody else is wrong. And so you make that known. So many times we think that we are right and someone else is wrong. So what do we do? The kind of phrases we use around here in our culture. We give them a piece of our mind or we tell them off or we confront them. I think back over the 
the years of being a husband and a father, how many times I have made the mistake with my wife and my kids of just confronting in a way just because I thought I was right and they were wrong. And somehow thinking that's that, therefore, if you think you're right and they're wrong, that you're supposed to then engage that situation. What's the problem with this? The problem with this, it's not really about helping restore the person that you're confronting. It's either about making you feel better or proving them wrong, which are really the same thing. It's putting somebody else down to lift yourself up. And that will never help restore someone who's going in the wrong direction. It will only drive a wedge between you and momentarily make you feel better about yourself. Well, I told them. Early on pastoring, first church we pastored, just starting off. Another church in a nearby town asked us to come. They gave us 20 people and they said, go start this church. And honestly, the pastor said this about the people. He said, I'm telling you, they're the bottom of the barrel of our church. I wish I could have better people to give you, but these are the bottom of the barrel. He wasn't being mean. He was just saying, they really aren't engaged. They're really not going to happen to live in the city that you're going to start in. So he said, you know, good luck. You know, here's 20 people to start with. And it was, it was a challenge. And I was brand new, right out of Bible college, and trying to start, and, and I would meet with this guy regularly and, and tell him, well, I, I said this, and I did that, and I did this. And he, he finally said to me, and he was in the middle of a conversation, he was a master at doing this. He just one day in the middle of a conversation said, you know, I've noticed the people who are always saying, well, I told him. They don't last real long in ministry. And then he went on to talk about something else. And like later in the day, you probably remember it, later in the day, all of a sudden I went, I think he was correcting me. Do you remember it? I was 27 years old. I think, David Broberg, remember him, Chris? I think he was correcting me. He was talking about me. And he was. He was talking about me. And he's saying, Mark, you know what? Just because you're right, you don't have to tell that person you're right just to put them in their place because they're wrong. And guess what? They might be wrong, but is it doing any good to correct the situation? You see, the goal, the only goal, in confrontation is restoration. The goal is not proving you're right. The goal is not proving someone else is wrong because that doesn't change anything. The only goal in confrontation is restoration. i got a ladybug visiting me here. Where did that thing come from? The only goal, maybe God is saying amen to that point, is restoration. The Apostle Paul um, explains this exact same thing in the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, listen to what he says. 6-1 in Galatians. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another Christian is overcome by some sin, so first of all, understand, Paul, 2,000 years ago, was talking about two church people. He's writing to Portview Church, and he goes, guess what? Some people in your church family are going to be overcome by sin. Don't be surprised at it when it happens to the person next to you, and don't be surprised at it when it happens to you. Okay? It's part of human existence. Dear brothers and sisters, if any other Christian is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Did you hear what he says the goal of the confrontation is? Help that person back onto the right path. Not just say, 
guess what? You're wrong, I'm right. It's not, it's not about me. If it's about me, then it's not ever going to do any good. It's only going to cause division and it's not going to bring any, any positiveness out of it. It's only ever for restoration. And so, if you want to help restore the person, and again, Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar some really hard, difficult things. You're going to become like a cow for seven years and eat grass. That's a pretty big deal. You're going to be, go crazy and be like a cow and eat grass. You know, it's not like you're being nice to King Nebuchadnezzar. So it doesn't say you can't say hard things. But what's the purpose of the hard thing? To get the person back on the right path. That's what the Apostle Paul is also talking about in, in uh, chapter 6 of Galatians here. Help the person get back on the right path. This says something else about the confrontation. It in, implied in here. About being back on the right path. It's not simply about speaking truth. It's about walking with someone to help them overcome and be restored. Helping someone get on the right path is about a journey. A path is a journey. Don't be too quick to confront. Because what God is calling you to in the process is not just to speak truth, but to join someone on their journey of restoration. And that takes time and that takes effort. So don't be so quick to do it, because if you're going to do it, you should do it the way God wants it done. And the way God wants it done is you're only confronting, not to make yourself feel better, not to lift yourself up, not to prove them wrong, but to help restore them. And the restoration is a journey, and what you're doing is you're committing to a journey with that person. You see, it's so easy just to drive by judgment, drive by assaults. That's what social media does great. But it's only harmful and it never helps. But helping someone be restored is about coming alongside of them for the long haul. So when you become aware of of someone um, that you love that's an error, that's making bad choices, you know the kind of things that that might come out. You understand they're getting involved in an inappropriate relationship with someone. You're going, man, I see danger signs. This is warning signs. This is not good. Man, you're spending too much time with that lady. Lady, you're spending too much time with that man. You see somebody spending themselves into horrible debt, and you're going, man, this is going to destroy your entire future. You see somebody uh, mistreating their spouse or their kids. Those kinds of things. And think there could be a hundred other things. You see somebody spending time doing the wrong thing, going the wrong direction. Somebody engaging in a habit that could, could destroy them. You know, fill in the blank. All those things that you might see. What do you do? You ask yourself, this is what we've talked about. I'm going to summarize it here. You ask yourself if you have a real relationship with them first. Have you earned the right to get engaged in a situation? Have you earned the right to confront the situation? That's the first thing you do. Then you take an extended time to pray. And here's what I say in prayer. You pray for them, not for the situation. Because what you want is God's heart for that person. You pray, you don't say, God, change the situation. You could do that, but they got to be the one to make the change. So, and God does, you know, we pray sometimes such, such strange prayers. God, change the situation. Have Mark stop doing that. Well, guess what? That's not the way it really works. Because Mark's doing what Mark wants to do. And if God wants to use me in Mark's life, well, then i got to pray for, for my heart, for Mark, to get involved. So take an extended period of time to pray for them, and ask God to give you a heart for them and insight into the situation. 
and then only proceed with the right goal in mind, how can I help them get on the right path? And then know in advance that if you're going to get involved, you are committed to a journey. And if not, can I even do something? I've done enough crazy stuff today already. Stick your tongues out once, like this, a little bit. Bite your tongue. <laughs> if not, bite your tongue. Um, if you're not committed to a long journey, bite your tongue. Church, what's the goal that I'm aiming at here? Why take the risk of dealing with this topic in this, in this way that could have someone misunderstand it and say, I just got permission to go attack people if you hear what you want to hear instead of what's being said. Why? Because we want healthy relationships and a healthy church community filled with people who passionately love each other deeply. And rarely that will involve us getting involved in correcting one another. Rarely. Because I never want Portfield to feel like a place that's unsafe. A place where we might get ambushed if we do any little thing wrong. And I don't think we do that. And I don't ever want to go there. That would be terrible. So we remember how it started. Um, This is not supposed to be giving people permission to ambush. Rather, we want a healthy church where we are safe and we love each other. But we love each other so much that if one of us starts to go off course, we love love each other enough to help correct them and bring them back in before it's too late and they suffer consequences, they hurt other people, or they find just calamity in their life. So we want to create a place, families and a church, where this is the way we interact with each other. Because we love each other. Not because we're trying to make ourselves feel better, but because we love each other and we care enough. Now that speaks something about the church. It says this, that... I can't have that intimate, really friendship, loving relationship with everybody. Because here's what happens very often in a church world. People come to me and they say, I'm totally joking. Pastor Mark, did you hear what John's doing? And John's just always hugging people. That's a good thing. You know, you hear what so-and-so's doing? What are you going to do about it? And that's why a lot of times a leader ends up being, if you've got to deal with stuff, you've got to deal with it. And you don't have a relationship, but you're forced into a corner where you have to deal with it. Because the people who should deal with it don't deal with it. So you're forced to deal with things without the relationship and therefore it ends up usually not working. So what I usually say to people is, so what's God asking you to do? What's God asking you to do? Because here's the deal. You're going to have relationships with people more intimately than I can. Because no person can have relationships with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. But all of us can have a relationship with 10 or 20. And then when God shows you in that situation, one of those people that you deeply love because they're in your world and you see them going off path, you go through this process we just talked about. Do I have the right relationship? Am I praying for them? You know, what's the reason I would confront? And if you conclude I'm supposed to say something, then you're the right person to do it. And that's how we create a safe, loving community in our families and at Portview, and it spreads from there. Does that make sense? Amen.